Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. So we are so thrilled today to welcome Heather Guidon to our show. If you don't know Heather, Heather is a BCPA, which is a board-certified patient advocate, and she's the program director of the Center for Endometriosis Care. Now, the Center for Endometriosis Care is led by the internationally renowned endometriosis expert, Ken Sinervo, and the Center for Endometriosis Care is a global leader in the care and treatment of endometriosis. So, as we mentioned, Heather is the program director at the CEC. She's responsible for the center's comprehensive multidisciplinary care program, clinical research facilitation, disease education, and legislative and public policy endeavors in order to promote better care for endometriosis and pelvic pain gynepathologies. She also coordinates the center's minimally invasive gynecologic surgery and endometriosis surgical fellowship program. Heather is focused on bench-to-beltway-to-bedside efforts in endometriosis education, research, policy reform, patient-centered care, and more for nearly 30 years. Wow, and more. Jeez, I know, Heather. and more. I just Heather have time for all this. My goodness. For that long. Woo. She's also personally struggled with advanced endometriosis, adenomyosis, and infertility herself, so she brings a unique perspective to her professional works. That's really important. So we want to thank Heather so much for coming on the show. Please enjoy the interview with Heather, board-certified patient advocate and program director at the CEC, in addition to her countless millions of other advocacy efforts. We are so grateful for Heather here in the community. So please enjoy the interview. Thank you so much for being on the show today and taking the time to speak to all of us about endometriosis. You know, you're so involved in the endo community. And as Brittany and I mentioned in our introduction, you take part in advocacy efforts, clinical research, disease education, legislative policy. Like, I literally don't know how you have the time for every single thing that you do. And it's funny because recently I was speaking to Wendy from Extra Pelvic Not Rare, who is actually coming on the show next week after your interview. And she commented that you are the heartbeat of the endometriosis community since you are involved in so many initiatives. And I just thought that was really beautiful and a really nice way to recognize your involvement and all of your accomplishments. So I think just on behalf of me and all of the listeners today, we want to thank you, Heather, the heartbeat of the endometriosis community, which I do think you should put that on your business card. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us today because we are so, so grateful to learn from you and learn from all of your decades of knowledge. 
Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, that is probably the sweetest introduction and the nicest things anybody has ever said about me. So thank you, you know, for all that you do, all of the advocacy and education that you do, because this is really, you know, a group effort. None of us can do this on our own. Uh, we all stand on the shoulders of giants before us and it really does take a village. So thank you. I really appreciate it. We are also honored to be part of this village for endometriosis advocacy and bettering our care. So although Brittany and I just introduced you, I would love if you could really quickly introduce yourself in your own words and then share any details that you'd like about your endometriosis story or about your advocacy. And then we'll just jump right into the questions because I know our time is a little bit limited today and we have a lot of really amazing questions to get to. Sure, absolutely. Um, so as you know, I'm the program director of the Center for Endometriosis Care. I have the privilege of working for Dr. Ken Sonervo there alongside a really incredible and amazing CEC team with Dr. Arrington and, and all of our staff. Yes, I've both lived with the disease and, and worked in the disease space professionally for almost 30 years, as you mentioned, across the clinical care and research and treatment spectrum. I also volunteer in the nonprofit sector. I've worked on patient engagement initiatives. You know, I like to keep my fingers involved wherever I can. But yes, I am also a former stage four patient myself. Many people know my history, some don't. Um, I don't want to make it all about me, but over the course of my journey, I underwent more than 20 poorly done surgeries and a number of failed medical therapies for the disease. So, you know, I have a little bit of that perspective uh, that kind of makes me want to drive home the impact of what living with endometriosis is really like, the impact that this disease has on our global community. I apply that to my work every day. Endometriosis really quickly became such a profound part of my life and of me. Even very early on in the journey, my health, my emotional, physical, mental well-being, my relationships, my fertility, my career, really the ability to engage in my own life. And this is not something unfamiliar to most of us with the disease. But it was not until my own excision surgery that I was really able to see my quality of life and my fertility largely restored. And ultimately, down that very rocky path, I was led to laparoscopic excision myself. And it literally saved my life. It helped me after years and years of suffering, six years of infertility. After I was able to have my son, I was diagnosed with adenomyosis and some other kind of pathologies, which did lead to a hysterectomy. But prior to that, uh, had it not been for my excision specialist, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. You know, and I don't mean that in any sort of dramatic terms, but as anybody who's kind of lived with endometriosis knows, you know, this, this disease has uh, the propensity to really take over our life in various and sundry ways. So yeah, I work in the space. I live in the space. <laughs> I eat, sleep, and breathe endometriosis, you know, and I'm very happy to share my personal experiences and my subject matter expertise to make sure that others are being well represented. I don't want to be the voice, but I want to make sure others can find their voice and that we are all being heard in the places where decisions about endometriosis care and treatment are being made. Thank you so much, Heather, for sharing your story and 
I heard that you had over 20 poorly done surgeries and before you found excision. And I I just want to acknowledge how difficult that must have been. And I know a lot of people listening to this podcast have also had multiple surgeries, 10, 13, 15, 20 surgeries, and that's really hard on the body and on the spirit as well. So you must be really strong, all of (laughs) you and all of you listening to have gone through what we go through every single day is so soul sucking and so draining on us. And I'm so glad that you found excision. I'm so glad it could help you feel better. And thank you for then coming back and devoting your life to helping others with endometriosis. And I'd also love to know what does endometriosis taste like if you eat, sleep, and breathe? <laughs> <Not good. laughs> Tastes foul. <laughs> it tastes like misinformation and dismissal. <laughs> so I'd love to move on to our questions, which um, first I'd love to talk a little bit about excision surgery now. As you mentioned, you're the program director for the Center for Endometriosis Care. And as we said at the beginning, the CEC is a global leader in care in the treatment of endometriosis, and it's a pioneer in laparoscopic excision. I do think many of our listeners are familiar with excision versus ablation. And if not, Brittany and I did do an episode on endometriosis treatment in great detail in episode 16, if anyone would like to go back to listen to that. So I think most of us are aware that excision is the quote unquote, gold standard of endometriosis care. And I just love if you could quickly tell us like your elevator pitch, why is excision surgery the gold standard, medically speaking? Sure, absolutely. You know, first I think we need to address what do we mean by laparoscopic excision or as Dr. Albi coined the phrase, lapex or lapex. What we're really talking about with excision is removing the lesion, removing the disease from all locations, wherever it appears think of it root to tip. And that includes areas that non-specialists would deem too risky, as many of my prior physicians did, places like the bowel, the nerves, and other areas. You know, excision is really an advantageous technique because it ensures that the entire lesion is cut out, which perhaps is even more important, dare I say, in cases of deeply infiltrating endometriosis or deeply fibrotic, as sometimes it's called, and disease on vital structures. And what I mean by deep endometriosis is fibrotic tissue glands and stroma that penetrate more than five millimeters into the surrounding tissue. Ablation can't touch that. When we're talking about ablation and burning, things of that nature, what that's really doing is taking the tip of an iceberg and it's leaving disease behind. Because it's been burned or zapped at that point, now you're left with buried disease also. And there's nothing to biopsy. So you don't know what was treated, how it was treated, when it was treated. You just know that you had a surgery. You don't know what was found and you don't know what became of the disease. So excision really is the gold standard because you are removing the disease. You know, and some folks like to say, well, it's new and it's experimental. It's not. Excision has been around since the 19th century. You know, they used to, if you've read Dr. Najat's article, you know, they used to dig it out with their fingernails, excise with their fingernails way back in the day. The problem is that most gynecologic surgeons are not excision surgeons, and there is a difference. So it's really extremely important to realize that although many physicians are treating endometriosis, they're not treating it the same way that the CEC or other excision surgeons would do. They're not cutting the disease out. And that is the cornerstone of a really robust multidisciplinary program to effectively treat the disease. You've got to get the disease out or any of the other adjuncts are not going to work. So excision's been around since the 
century. I'm just wondering, I imagine that the technique has improved a lot. Do you think today anyone is still digging out endometriosis with their fingernails? Oh gosh, I hope not. <laughs> I bet some patients might feel like excising with their fingernails themselves. Maybe but one no, of the surgeons <laughs> in your, one of your first 20 surgeries. <laughs> but no, I mean, and, and that, you know, that actually kind of leads to a really good point too. You know, we hear things like, oh, you have to get excision with the robot or you have to get excision with cold scissors or you can't excise with the laser. And I want to put a stop to that immediately because um, as the saying goes, it's not the singer, it's the song. It's not what tool you're using. It's whether or not you're using that tool to truly remove the disease. So for the next question, you know, I heard Heather in your story that you had a lot of surgeries and it wasn't until excision surgery that you really were able to get your quality of life back. I actually only had excision. I did not have any surgeries prior, but that's also because the doctors could not figure out how the heck to diagnose me. So it took 16 years. And by the time I got diagnosed, I had excision in the same surgery, uh, very luckily. So I'm very grateful for that. I can say for me, I tried everything under the sun from exercise change to diet to all kinds of health and wellness practices that really are good for a person and really helped me in many ways in my life, but just did nothing, absolutely nothing for my endometriosis pain or really for my fatigue. So I was just wondering what kind of benefits can a person hope to see from excision, like removing the lesions with excision? How does that really hope to benefit a person who's suffering from endometriosis? So what I will say is, you know, there isn't a day that goes by that we don't get a note from a former patient telling us how their life has been completely turned around pain-wise, symptom-wise. Many of our patients also go on to have successful pregnancies, although that's not necessarily the goal of our work. It just tends to be more of a happy byproduct of excision. In the patients that we're following, there's around a 50% success rate for fertility, even in the highest and most complex stages. You know, and the other side of that coin too, is that, you know, we know that endometriosis poses certain risks to negative obstetrical outcomes, not just to fertility. So ostensibly removal of the disease is going to limit those risks as well. But the majority of our patients have significantly reduced pain, restored quality of life, and I certainly don't want to in any way diminish the percentage of patients who don't, because that is a real conversation also. But as I said, procreative ability is not at the top of our patients' lists for the most part, and it's not something that we generally focus on. They want to be out of pain, and we want to help them get there. Fertility restoration is, like I said, a happy byproduct, as it was for me, because I was told I would never have a child. But ultimately, we want patients to be able to live their life and be well so that they can have their options moving forward. And each case is different. You know, we've had patients who notice a difference immediately, even in the recovery room. I was one of those patients. I was in surgical pain, but I knew. I knew the difference for the first time in a very long time, the difference between surgery pain and my ongoing chronic pain. Others get in touch five or six months later, tell us their life is completely transformed. Others get in touch with us five years later and, and tell us how they're doing. You know, I've graduated law school or I've gone on to family building or, you know, dreams that they never thought that they would be able to achieve. But I do want to stress, and I tell this to our patients, you know, there's no template for recovery or expectations. 
again, that drives home the, the multidisciplinary approach being key. Not all pain is endometriosis. And although you can excise the disease, there may also be symptoms thereafter, which are often due to secondary pain generators, like in my case, adenomyosis, fibroids, things like that. Pelvic floor dysfunction, very common in endometriosis. So we find that a lot of our patients benefit significantly from adjuncts postoperatively, whether it's pelvic floor physical therapy or other adjuncts. Things like being physically active can help when you feel strong enough, low impact activities, walking, swimming, things like that. Nutrition, these are all things that hold a role in overall health. And of course, support. You know, you want to get support for this disease throughout the whole process before, during, and after. But as I said, for me and for many others, it starts with excision. You've got to get the disease out. Yeah, I think it's really can be very individual. And I think excision has helped me immensely. I mean, it's, it's really, truly helped me with the incapacitating pain, a lot of the digestive symptoms I was having. But I also can recognize now that not everything that I thought was due to endometriosis was due to endometriosis. And it's 2.5 years out from my excision. And I no longer have painful periods, which blows my mind because I used to be incapacitated, writhing on the floor, vomiting and pooing accidentally on myself. And so, I mean, the pain was so out of this world and now it's gone. But however, I still have to work on my endo belly, my bloat, my SIBO, my hormone imbalance, my interstitial cystitis symptoms, my histamine intolerance, like there's just so much more to feeling better in my case, even though excision has helped me enormously. I'm still on this journey to, to healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think you couched it correctly when you say a journey, because it is a journey. I mean, I am 20 years out from my excision. It's still a journey for me. You know, there are still days when I don't feel great. <laughs> you know? I don't want to give this impression that, you know, we go through this excision surgery and, and yay, everything is perfect now. Are things 90% improved? Absolutely. Does that mean that I'm done with endo and I don't have any aches or pains or problems? No, certainly not. You know, and I think part of the things we don't talk about is that the treatments can also cause pain and problems and issues. Having a hysterectomy in your 20s, that has a lasting impact. Some of the drugs that we take for endo, they have a lasting impact. So it really is a process and it really is a journey. I think for so many of us, if we're able to have excision, we can become worried after excision that our disease is just going to come right back. And that, of course, with the disease coming back, our symptoms are just going to come right back. And then our quality of life is going to go back down and we're going to be in the same spot that we were in prior to excision. So I'm just wondering, does endometriosis always come back and how common is recurrence? And then I was also hoping you could touch on the difference between persistence versus recurrence, because I think we often hear a lot about recurrence in the community being talked about, but we don't really hear the word persistence mm -hmm. being thrown around a lot. So really, what does that mean? And then I'm also wondering, how would surgeons know the difference between persistence and recurrence? And does that even matter? Yeah. I mean, you know, we get that a lot. Can endo recur? Does endo recur? The short answer? Sure. It can recur. It can persist. You know, the former is actually true recurrence. The latter meaning it was never actually removed in the first place. When it's resected or excised, as we more commonly call it, we see a far less 
true recurrence in reoperative cases versus disease that was burned or you know left behind. And that is more often persistent endometriosis that was just left untouched. Then we can really drill down into, well, why? Why does that happen? Well, endometriosis is a really enigmatic and complex disease. You know, it's still a puzzling and significant clinical challenge. With that said, we can expect actual recurrence to be very low in the presence of excision. Certainly much, much lower than other superficial means of surgical destruction. True recurrence is possible, but it's somewhere in the realm of 7 to 10%, give or take, depending on the center being studied and their retrospective data, versus as high as 70% or higher in non-excisional settings. You know, and that's not just us, that's the literature by others as well. Generally, when we see disease that is truly recurred or true recurrence, typically it's usually in or around the same area that was excised previously. In cases of persistence, you can tell that it's in a previously untouched or untreated area. You know, like any endometriosis case, the surgeon has to know where to look for the disease. They have to know what it can look like in all manifestations, and they need to know how to remove it so it can be biopsied. You know, and again, I want to hearken back to that fact that it's really critical to know that recurrence of pain is not always synonymous with recurrence of endometriosis. As far as, you know, how and how and why can or does it recur? I mean, that is an age old debate. Whether endometriosis recurs from residual disease remaining after surgery, which would be by definition persistence, actually, or from newer lesions, that really depends on who you're asking, what study you're looking at, who's doing the reporting. Recurrent endometriomas tend to be very common, whereas other forms of disease, if truly excised, have much lower rates. There was a study back in 2012 by Dr. Charles Coe and some others who demonstrated that true recurrence was actually higher in patients with lower stage disease, interestingly enough, versus stage three or four. And it's also been noted that for some, the disease is aggressive and has a higher recurrence rate and might even be a different form of endometriosis altogether in adolescents or younger patients. You know, and I think too, it's important that we have to acknowledge the variability in the recurrence rate found in the literature. It really depends on so many different factors. The reporting author's own definition of the term, the type of lesion, was there any post-op suppression used? What stage was the disease at? And of course, you know, the skill of the surgeon and the technique, was it really excision? All that notwithstanding, why does it recur is really anyone's guess. Could it be the result of ongoing tissue repair, genetics? Is it really persistence? Are there cells left behind after surgery, even with the best of excisionists? Me personally, I am inclined to hedge a guess that it more often than not trends towards, you know, incomplete removal, but also the unpredictable nature of the disease. So I think that we've established that excision really is the cornerstone of a multidisciplinary approach to effective disease management. But unfortunately, as we know, there are still many hurdles to access excision. And these are things such as the lack of qualified specialists, the location of these specialists, insurance hurdles, and costs. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the insurance hurdles and the coding situation and why excision can be very expensive. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, I think this is a very timely and valid discussion and a very important one because 
cost and insurance can really mean the difference between getting quality care and getting subpar care. The problem that we have here is that endometriosis is not a formally designated subspecialty. So to that end, the age-old issue of proper coding is really continually unresolved. What do I mean by that? Well, that means the relative value for excision of endometriosis is viewed exactly the same way by payers and insurers as any other means of surgical destruction. So for example, you could go to any surgeon, any gynecologic surgeon, and they go in and they, they zap, zap, zap versus going to a center of expertise like ours, where they're spending five, six hours excising off the nerves and the bowels, the insurance company is looking at that the same exact way. They're not taking into consideration that excision takes years and years and thousands of cases of advanced training to become proficient in. Our surgeries take longer. They're more complex. They have increased degree of technical difficulty. And the insurance thinks that that's the same as doing what we would call a peak and shriek that either doesn't treat the disease at all or worse, treats it incorrectly. So bureaucracy is really, you know, dictating and driving the care, telling physicians when and how they can treat the disease and and tying their hands. So as a response over, you know, several decades, most centers of expertise and dedicated surgeons who focus on endo and pelvic pain gonopathologies have been forced to go out of network because they're not going to be told how to treat their patients. And that brings a whole separate issue into the mix in terms of, you know, out-of-network coverage and so forth. Like a center like ours, we are out-of-network. That doesn't mean we don't take insurance. It means we're an out-of-network provider. And that's when you start running into issues that we see in terms of doing appeals and trying to obtain coverage so that our patients are able to access the care. And sort of the pushback we see most of the time is that insurance companies will insist that equivalent of care is available in their network. Because they're not taking the time to educate themselves on surgical modalities, efficacy of treatments. They don't know the difference. Most of them don't know what endometriosis even is. They're not recognizing that excisional biopsy is offering a higher success rate in treating the disease. But also, by the same token, surgical excision requires a higher level of skill. In non-excision settings, many patients are receiving incomplete treatment, like me you know, which invariably leads to what? Persistent (laughs) symptoms and disease and surgical damage in some cases. You know, if an insurance provider was to pull their in-network physicians in a regional coverage area, we know that they're not going to find centers of expertise. They're going to find that the great majority are treating endometriosis medically with drugs and with superficial surgical methods. So as our founder, Dr. Albi, has always said, You know, simply because someone uses a laser to operate on endometriosis doesn't mean they're doing quality surgery vis-a-vis true excision. As an industry and a community on the whole, we've really got to stop drawing these mistaken conclusions and making these assumptions that, that all surgery is performed by surgeons of similar caliber and really recognizing the wide discrepancy that actually exists. At the end of the day, Quality care is reducing the number of interventions a patient has to undergo, and you're saving money. To say nothing of reduced complications and improved outcomes in the specialty setting. So we fight long and hard every day that excision should not be injudiciously withheld from people with the disease because it doesn't have its own CPT code. And we have been involved in this discussion and this dialogue and these efforts for years and years and years, decades even. 
in an effort to affect better and more accurate coding that really substantiates the actual work that goes into endometriosis treatment so everybody can access gold standard care. We want patients to be covered under their respective plans through either direct coverage or out-of-network allowances or, or some exemptions. And, you know, we shout it from the roof. We cannot allow bureaucracy to continue to drive patient care. Standards of excellence have to be the force behind the treatment protocols. All surgery is expensive. You know, an excision is no different. But when patients have to come out of pocket for what should be covered, it makes it unattainable. And that's just unacceptable. Yeah, it is completely unacceptable. And I'll just throw in here about the awful reimbursement for excision surgery if the doctor is in network by the insurance, because my surgery was actually an in-network excision surgery with a gynecologist who does excision. And when I paid, I could see through my insurance provider what the surgeon billed to the insurance and what the what the surgeon was reimbursed. And I was so horrified that the amount that the surgeon was reimbursed was so low, in my opinion. And I won't say how much it was, but I will <laughs> say for the second surgeon who was the GI assist, he got paid $14 by yeah, my that's, insurance that's not surprising. for his incredible hard work. They both wrote a post-op report, both the excision surgeon and the mm -hmm. GI doctor who did the bowel part. And I know it was a mess in there because he used words like extensive and debulking and mm -hmm. his language showed that it was a difficult surgery and he got paid $14 for his hour of work or more in my surgery of the excision surgeon was considered the lead surgeon. So the excision surgeon did get significantly higher than $14, but was still underpaid by any means. And I was just so horrified. I think insurance there's huge problems with the insurance here in the United States. And tremendous. it's yeah. unfair to the patient and it's unfair to the doctor. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding out there and it's easy to misunderstand or to make assumptions that, well, it must be just a greedy surgeon. No, <laughs> I work with one of the best surgeons in the entire world. And I know how hard and how many hours a week that man works and how much he gives away. So, you know, it's been my experience in our community that most endometriosis surgeons are not greedy. They're not in this to live in trillion dollar homes or buy boats and so forth. They're in this because they want to help people. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of public understanding or sort of peeking beneath the covers to see what's really going on in terms of payers and insurance coverage and so forth. And, you know, we could have a whole separate show about that. <laughs> but, you know, I always say when, when you want to know why your insurance company won't cover, look no further than the AMA and ACOG and the medical oversight bodies that are responsible for the coding issues. When they decide to recognize and validate not just the surgeons who have dedicated their lives to treating this incredibly technically complex disease, but when they recognize the bodies living with endometriosis and say, you matter, you value, let's get you help. You know, nothing's going to change no matter how hard we push. Yeah. Before we move on to the next segment on endometriosis itself, I do want to say that we've talked in the past on this podcast about ACOG and the governing bodies of endometriosis and pharmaceutical companies and insurance. And so that whole, it's a very complex, horrifying, disgusting mess that ultimately leaves both the patient and the provider shortchanged. 
the patient shortchanged with their quality of life, the provider shortchanged for the work that they do, and the thousands and thousands of hours and surgeries and fellowships and trainings that go into having the skill to do such a complicated gynecological surgery. And it's just disappointing. And and hopefully we can keep trying to change that. Yeah, we're not going to give up. I mean, you can't boil the ocean, but we can continue our efforts. You know, we're not going away. (laughs) Okay, so on to very exciting for me, at least, because I'm really nerdy and I love to know about endometriosis and try to understand better this really enigmatic disease. But I'd love to just ask you, like, what exactly does endometriosis do in the body? I'm just wondering, does endometriosis always progress? Does it always invade? Does it always become fibrotic? What do all those terms mean? So maybe I'll let you take the reins. And then when you finish, I might come back in with a couple more questions. I do want to kind of back up to the beginning a little bit, because I think in order to really fully address this question, we have to understand what the disease actually is, at least to the extent that we can, right? Because still so much is just so unknown. And I know you've covered this on your show before, but clinically speaking, endometriosis is the existence of endometrial-like tissue located in the extrauterine environment. And the emphasis there, and you'll see me do this a thousand times in anything I write or speak about, the emphasis is on like. (laughs) Because although they are similar, endometriotic lesions are molecularly distinct entities compared to the utopic endometrium. You know, the tissue, the lesion tissue is really functionally dissimilar from its utopic or normal counterparts. And this is a really important distinction because the misnomer that they are just identical and it's just somehow endometrial lining just hither and yon throughout the body, that factors largely into the research and the treatment of the disease. And these are really vastly outdated assumptions that still so many hold on to They have led to this enduring belief that endometriosis is just a simplistic disease. It can be very easily treated and cured through hormonal suppression and or hysterectomy, which is not true. So endometriosis really develops most commonly on the pelvic structures like the ovaries, the GI tract, urinary tract, soft tissues, but it can also be found outside the pelvis as well, just in sites like the lung or the diaphragm are called extrapelvic endometriosis. They're not as rare as folks would think. They're a little less common, but more often than not, I think it's fair to say that they're sorely underdiagnosed. So when you've got a lesion, you've got endometriosis, what's going on is that now this lesion is eliciting a a sustained inflammatory response. You've got things like angiogenesis, which deals with blood supply, you've got adhesions, you've got fibrotic tissue, you've got scarring, nerve infiltration, marked distortion of pelvic anatomy, development of painful endometriomas, and a number of comorbidities as well. I don't think that we can really leave that out as far as what does endo do in the body. You know, in the simplest of terms, to give a very high-level overview of what is an extremely complex process, there are nerve fibers near the lesions and the lesions themselves are also innervated. So there's an extensive inflammatory response that's stimulating the secretion of noxious pro-inflammatory substances, and these are transmitting pain signals. Inflammation-induced pain plays a huge role in endometriosis, and there's a wide-ranging number of symptoms that can really become systemic and chronic over time. 
that's sort of the Reader's Digest version, but I, I do think it bears saying that there are probably few conditions as poorly understood as endometriosis and invalidated and undertreated as well. You know, I think that it still is linked to painful periods, despite symptoms routinely impacting sufferers far and apart from their periods and in those who do not menstruate. Sufferers of all ages are routinely told it's in your head, your symptoms are normal. You know, a lot of the status quo that we see now in the same quagmire that people are walking through with endometriosis, I fought through 30 years ago, you know, in the 1980s, they're still getting the same treatment today. And, and I find that really just, you know, sad and, and unacceptable. You know, we're still pushing patients off onto these new drugs that really do little more than their predecessors and have a huge host of side effects still being told that pregnancy and hysterectomy or menopause will cure endo because it's a disease of the uterus. Uh, you know, people are still being told that doctors treat the disease the same way. All treatments are equivalent. You know, so folks are still being really misled and they've got this, you know, incredibly complex disease process going on. And I think that all of that complexity of the disease and the processes that are going on with adhesions, with the fibrotic tissue, with the invasive nature of the lesion, that really drives home the point of early diagnosis and intervention being critical. You can preserve quality of life. You can reduce disease morbidity, infertility, symptomology. You can help all of those things with early intervention. That means timely diagnosis. That means proper removal and multidisciplinary adjuncts. You know, we have to stop saying that endometriosis is disease confined to menstruation, then that it's, you know, cured by removal of the uterus, that it's just painful periods, that it only affects menstruators. By very definition, endometriosis is a disease that occurs outside the uterus. I mean, you don't need to have a period to have symptoms, you know, and I think one of the most offensive things I ever heard in my professional works was a lecture that I had attended about five years ago, and the speaker who I will not name, but suffice to say, she called those who suffered from painful periods menstrual moaners. And I have not moved past that yet. And I want, <laughs> I want people to know endometriosis is literally causing the most noxious, painful stimuli in one's body on a systemic basis. People are not being menstrual moaners. They're suffering. You know, so that kind of attitude is so offensive to me. And again, it comes back to the early diagnosis and proper treatment early on. I don't know if that exactly answers the question. I hope it gives a little bit of insight, you know, from a physical perspective, what's going on in there. When you go in surgically, you know, what you're doing is you're taking out the lesion, as we've talked about, but you're also restoring anatomy. You're taking down adhesions. You're allowing organs to return to their normal positioning so that they can function properly. So all of that is really part and parcel of what the disease is doing inside the body. It's just so appalling. All of it was so disgusting, the menstrual moaners and the fact that the standard of care is the same as 30 years ago is just so, so disappointing. And again, it's reflected in how much all of us are suffering and the real pain and the real symptoms and the very real, real suffering incapacitating suffering at times that we're all going through. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit further now into endometriosis itself. I think 
many of us would love to know, like if we have stage one or superficial endometriosis, will it always become stage four if untreated? Will it always progress? Will it spread throughout my pelvis? Most of us are not getting diagnosed and treated in a timely manner. I didn't get treated for 16 years. So many of the listeners are in the same boat as me, as you yourself not getting treated for after surgery and surgery and surgery. So many of us are not getting treated for a decade or more if we're able to get treated with excision. So I'm just wondering what kind of disease progress is happening in the body. Is it uniform? Is it varied between individuals? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes to all the above. No. So, I mean, does endo always progress? Well, the first thing I would say about that is there are folks who don't even know they have endometriosis. They don't have pain. They don't have symptoms. I don't know those people, but I hear they exist much like unicorns. But that's a fact. I mean, some endometriosis is asymptomatic and folks find out incidentally years and years later when they go for something else, be it fertility or, or some issue. But in terms of does the disease always progress, you know, I start with stage one, do I end up with stage four if left untreated? Yes and no. I do think endometriosis is progressive in the sense that progressive and worsening symptoms can and will occur. In many cases, impaired fertility, additional symptoms like GI, bladder, depending on your unique situation. I, they do vary between patients, but I do think progressive symptomology is, is very common. And I do think that the lesions can certainly morph into more fibrotic, more invasive forms of the disease. You know, there's plenty of animal and human studies that demonstrate progressive disease, as well as other literature, which talks about, you know, symptomatically and clinically progressive endometriosis after menopause, for example. There's work that's been done on progressive disease in teens, as well as progression of endometriomas, which can become more sizable, more painful. I am personally pretty comfortable with the notion that endometriosis is a progressive disease. Now, that does not mean it's populating throughout the body like a field of daisies, but that it's entirely possible for the disease to become deeper, more painful, more symptomatic. Dr. Arrington and Dr. Snervo both talk a lot about this, and Dr. Redwine, of course, has certainly done the lion's share on this. Can it become more painful, more progressive? Absolutely. Is it sort of like a wildfire just populating everywhere in the body? Not necessarily. There is an entire school of thought that believes endometriosis is a static disease, meaning that the lesion itself can become more aggressive, if you will, for lack of a better term. But it's not just popping up all over the place. So I think when we talk about progression, we're talking about progression of symptoms. Certainly, things like adhesions, scar tissue, the fibrosis that accompanies it, those things can be worse also. But in terms of the actual disease somehow just multiplying all over the body, not necessarily. When we talk about the lesion itself growing and so forth, I immediately think of endometriomas, which can become much more sizable. Lesions themselves, yeah, they can grow where they are. They can become deeper. They can become more invasive. Does that mean if I have bowel endometriosis that tomorrow I'm going to wake up with thoracic endometriosis? No, not necessarily. Thank you, Heather, for all of that, because that's just really fascinating. I think a lot of us are just, you know, wondering what the heck endometriosis is doing inside of our bodies and why is it causing pain and just really 
what is going on. And I think, as you said, the disease has been downplayed so much that so many of us have been taught or told that, oh, it's just a bad period, or it's really like not a big deal. And endometriosis is a big deal. And I think as people living with the disease, it's important to know what's going on in our bodies and really how the disease is affecting us. And I think that's also really validating to know that we're not menstrual moaners or monthly moaners, you know, because it might not just be in the menstrual cycle. My pain was certainly all month long before excision. So I wasn't just a daily moaner. I was suffering from a real disease that was having a real biological effect on my body. And I can certainly say that when I was 19, I had a really a lot, a lot of severe symptoms. And the gynecologist looked for endometriosis. She quote unquote, didn't find it. And of course, endometriosis was there. Fast forward 14 years later, I had a, you know, another laparoscopic excision with looking at the same time for diagnosis. And there was endometriosis very obviously in my pelvis. So I know in my own case, the disease inside of my body did change during that time. And It just sickens me how few doctors are able to understand the complex nature and the serious nature of endometriosis and treat that in a timely manner. Imagine if I or any of us listening or you had gotten proper treatment at, you know, 19, 20, 22 years old when we suspected endometriosis instead of being told that it was in our heads or you know, that they'd looked and they didn't see it. So it was out of the differential diagnosis that they no longer envisioned that it could be that. And then you get misdiagnosed with IBS. (laughs) Uh, Yes, absolutely. You know, and you make a really good point. It's really important for everyone to know about endometriosis, not just people like us who suffer from it or previously suffered from it. You know, you don't have to suffer from this disease personally, or if you haven't been diagnosed yet. I mean, we're talking about an illness that has an incredibly staggering direct healthcare cost impact, you know, not just on the patient, but on society in terms of associated absenteeism, lack of presenteeism at work, lost productivity, the healthcare costs, these things that all accompany endometriosis, they're important for everyone to know. We should all be invested in finding better answers and accessing better care for this disease because it costs everybody. You know, so that doesn't mean that it's just individuals with endometriosis that need to worry about what we're going to do next and how we're going to fix this problem. We've got to teach people when, where, and how to obtain help. And at the first signs of symptoms, that talks about, you know, school education. And we're big supporters of the EndoWhat School Nurse Initiative. But it's really vital also that the public is involved in finding answers. Legislators, researchers, hospital administrators, gynecologists, subspecialists, all of us, we all need to be involved in the care and education of patients and to push for early diagnosis and proper intervention. The absolute goal should be to preserve quality of life and reduce disease morbidity in everyone who is affected. So this really has a subsequent impact on the public at large. Well, thank you, Heather, so much for everything that you spoke about today. You know, we can really tell when you speak how caring and kind and passionate you are about the endometriosis community. I mean, it's just, we're so lucky and grateful to have someone like you and others who are in the community, you know, making these efforts for advocacy, for legislative changes, for educational efforts. It's really remarkable, all that you know, all of your knowledge. I'm in total awe. Like, 
I just feel like I just recorded with someone famous. Like after, <laughs> if you can email me your digital signature, your autograph, <laughs> <laughs> then I can use it to buy stuff in your name. No, just kidding about that part. <laughs> but I just, I feel so happy that you could take the time to talk to all of us listening because this information is so important and you are such a wealth of knowledge. It's really a privilege of mine. Very few of us in life get to do what we love. And I don't know what I would be doing differently if my healthcare journey had gone differently, but this is where I belong. So, you know, that I am able to be a part of this community for me is really an honor. You know, I want to encourage that any patient with endometriosis or anybody who loves someone with endometriosis, you've really got to become your own advocates. You've got to stand up and take charge of your own health investigate all the options available, not just the ones your doctor proposes to you. You know, as you go down the treatment path, you may find that some physician's agenda doesn't match yours and their outcomes goal for you are not the same. You know, and I also really want people to know this is not all doom and gloom either. Although, you know, it may seem invisible, we don't talk about it every day. I want people to know that there is extensive disease research going on. There are legislative efforts going on there are countless awareness campaigns. There's a lot of work being done out here in the professional sector to try and help elevate this disease every day. And, and I don't want anybody to lose hope. No matter what, please don't give up. Find your voice, use your voice, seek your answers, tell your story. And there's strength in numbers. So we need to stick together. Yeah, I think a lot is going on behind the scene. And I know when I was doing a little research about you, stalking you, one might say, <laughs> for the <laughs> for the introduction at the beginning of the episode, and I saw all of your accomplishments and, you know, your research articles and the chapter you submitted in the Palgrave's Menstruation Handbook. And I just was so in awe of like, wow, Heather is doing all of these things and you're one person doing all of these things and there are other people also doing all kinds of efforts. And so I think sometimes as patients ourselves, we're unaware of all that's going on behind the scenes, but people are working really hard to try to change endometriosis. And I know even the listeners are too, whether that means Absolutely. you're advocating on social media, you're talking to your coworkers, to your friends, to your family, you're educating people, you're standing up for yourself in the doctor's office and saying, I would like this kind of treatment. If you can't offer that to me, I'll seek a specialist. Even that is letting the doctor know, oh, patient attitude is changing. They're looking for something different. Should I look into that? You know. So I think that it's a collaborative effort and there's so many drops going in and hopefully the ocean will fill up quickly and we can all get the help that we need. And I think that you're really an inspiration to all of us. And I also think what you said about who would have thought maybe 20 years ago, you would be in the position that you're in now and that endometriosis could shape your future, could shape you into this magnificent advocate that you are today. And that also, I think, gives us hope that although things may not be good for us now, and we might be in a dark season and a dark moment of our lives, things can change. And one year, five years, 10 20 years from now. And I know that it's a long time out to think 20 years from now, but hopefully I think at some point we'll be able to look back and say, I'm here where I am today because of my resilience, my strength, my suffering, and I'm in the right place finally. So, and because I had a lot of help, <laughs> <laughs> I still have a lot of help. Uh, I don't do anything without the support of Dr. Sinervo and his center. You know, he really cares so deeply 
and Dr. Arrington too, he's so vocal as an advocate and they care so deeply about people with this disease. It's easy to kind of say, well, one person is doing that, one person is doing that, but you know what? There's so much crossover in our community. You know, one day I could work with Casey Berna, uh, you know, on an ACOG project and the next day we're screening endo what? I mean, there's a lot of areas to get involved in and to help out in, but none of us does it alone. Well, I'd love to ask you the last question. Sure. Which is, so I know that you have a pet (laughs) and Brittany and I have an ongoing rivalry about what is better, cats or dogs. I am a cat lover to the core. Brittany has a dog, whatever. So (laughs) my question for you, and there is a correct answer to this, and that will determine whether this podcast actually airs at the beginning of March as scheduled. But no pressure or anything, Brittany and I would really like to know, what do you like better, cats or dogs? <laughs> well, listen, you know, I have to say, I'm sorry for Brittany, but it's a known fact that cats rule, okay? Oh, yes. Um, yes. Know, listen, I, sorry, I'm, Brittany. A dog, I'm a dog grandma, but I'm a cat mama. I'm convinced <laughs> that, you know, one day in the very, very far future, because of course, you know, I'm not old or anything, but I am convinced that one day I will be the cat lady. I want to have 65 cats running around, although my cat would probably resent me very much for that since she's the queen. But no, listen, you know, cats rule, dogs drool. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> all dog lovers they're just all, click all off. Done. Yeah, they used just to be a terrible reviews now. <laughs> That Heather Guido, the center director, she says she hates dogs. No, you love dogs too. I mean, we love I, them both. I, I listen, we love I, all animals. I have the cutest grand puppy. He makes me very happy. And the best part is he lives with my son. So I'm good <laughs> with that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, Heather. We really appreciate you coming on the show. And we hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. The pleasure is truly, truly all mine. I am just really grateful to be able to do what I do and to do it with the people I do it with. And I commend you on all of your efforts and all the work that you continuously do. We continue to lean upon you as a resource and we appreciate you so much. Thank you. You're too kind.